Welcome Committee. I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, she wouldn't even harm a fly. What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I am Connor Cornelius. And we're keeping the energy high day on this uh, new week of Chicago film talk. As is the custom, at the end of any month, we like to look back at the month that was in film, both big and small releases, with our NoCo Board of Review. I will be serving as your board chairman and uh, my co-chairman is connor and we've got our favorite board member here uh mr matt Sapola, who is a film critic over at film monthly uh you can also read some of his stuff on various film websites i really loved your essay on um the what was it the killing of a sh- sacred deer over <laughs> on i was i was like the wedding of an antler man i, yeah. c- I couldn't remember uh <laughs> killing of a sacred deer over on bright wall dark room uh matt welcome back so good to see you again hi thanks for having me again so uh i think this has been a pretty solid month i've been a big fan of october this year a surprising month a lot of records being broken um a lot of box office success so I, I would say it's an uptick from the end of the summer. We're not quite out of the slump yet, I would say. Uh, we've seen a lot of kind of stuff that I really didn't care about or stuff that, uh, even though I cared about, it, didn't do particularly well. Um, we're also starting to scratch at awards, you know, movie season in terms of a lot of the prestige pictures are going to be coming out right about now to get in under the wire for Oscar nominations. So we're just going to hop through a few of the biggest releases and some that have tickled a little bit of our fancy. Uh, let's go with a star is born, which I believe is the fourth version of this particular story. Uh, this one directed by Bradley Cooper, also starring Bradley Cooper and co-starring the, uh inimitable inimitable the infamous lady gaga in her first big film role um people have been gushing over it there have some been some that have already labeled it uh probably the movie of the year uh but i would say those people are a little bit more populist minded it's a big crowd pleaser people are very excited about it i was not super excited about it i saw it and i thought it was good i thought it was well made but it really did not hit me in the same way i think it's because prior to i watched the other versions of this movie and it it gave me a little bit of worry about how we approach remakes especially when we've done it so many times so matt give us your thoughts on a star is born i mean i liked it i didn't love it that's that's the thing it's for this is gonna sound like damning fame praise but for a movie that's entirely unnecessary yeah it's good that's true and unnecessary is we mean would you say you mean that in the nicest way possible i mean it's like again this is the fourth version of it and every generation gets their remake of this movie so i guess it's inevitable and i'm sure we'll see another one in about 25 years but i don't if not sooner but i i mean for what they did with it i i definitely enjoyed it my main issue was just it's they didn't do enough to modernize it or to make it feel timely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the main thing was all the um, 
the references to the internet or the music industry, they felt superfluous or more like padding. Um, and then there were a lot of other things that felt almost antiquated um, and then sometimes very much antiquated in terms of how the relationship plays out or it, it was, you know, it maintained, it so wanted to stay that archetypal story that I didn't really do much to go past that. So, I mean, the idea of like um, Bradley Cooper's character almost like, it's like Bradley Cooper's character, there's, you know, a bit where after they, after she meets Lady Gaga's character, they have their night, and then the next morning, he's like, hey, I have a concert, and she's like, that's cool, but I can't go, I have work, and he's like, I'll see you there, and she's like, I, no, you won't, I have work, and then he sends his driver to go, like, pick her up, and she's like, what the hell's going on? I, I can't go, I'm not doing this, and then she's, like, coerced into going, and then she's <laughs> like, okay, I'll hang out with you. And then classic love story. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, and then it was, the main thing was like, I, and it also plays into the fact that I never saw anything. I only saw Bradley Cooper and I only saw Lady Gaga, especially only Lady Gaga. Cause her character is so underwritten. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there was, a, I, I've seen this a lot of times. It's like, does her character have a last name? Cause they just call her Allie. And then by the time she has a last name, her, it's at the end when she says, my name is Allie Maine. So she took, bradley cooper's character's last name um but it was you know she's kind of defined by like the idea that she's incredibly talented and she's insecure about her nose so so basically we're redoing barbara streisand's yeah character and it's in like the 1976 version yeah and, you know? and it's like the reason i and so in theory i shouldn't like it and those are definitely the reasons i didn't go anywhere past thinking it was pretty good um but they have such an amazing chemistry that I was so entertained throughout. They do have yeah. a, they do have a good chemistry, but I I, I want to hone in on what you said about how underwritten Ali is because I find it super frustrating that the, one of the big things people are walking out of this movie with is like, oh my god, Lady Gaga is so good. Yeah, right. Everybody's talking about awards. They think she's going to be on the stage. Yeah, and honestly, at this point, I think you'd make a solid bet that she's going to make that shortlist. She is going to be on the list of nominees for Best Actress. And maybe it is because of that chemistry, and maybe it is because of her performances. Mm -hmm. And she does... I mean, I was admittedly enraptured by her singing and her performances yeah, but even like past her singing i and i just liked her she did a good job yeah, yeah i like her just talking she just has a really great presence but she's so amiable I could guess. it be that you're looking past her the fact that you like just kind of performed an underwritten character well because of who she is because she's not actually an actor maybe do you, is that tempering your well and i don't want people's expectations i don't want to be rude and be like Lady Gaga is not an actor. She is an actor. Prior to this, she is an award-winning actor. She won a Golden Globe for her uh, American Horror Story. Right. And so there, there's some, there's a contingent of people that are just like, well, Lady Gaga is not an actor. She is an actor. That's bullshit because she's an award-winning actor prior to doing this. But did do you she think also that- won a Tony? Am I? Did I make that up? She might. Uh, let me let me do a little half-ass internet research here. Trust me, real she quick. will be egot queen in the future right oh no doubt i mean it's gonna happen um and one way or another my yeah. question is more that would you assume that because people know her as a singer that they are surprised by her performance and then kind of blown away by how good the performance is and how well made the movie is i would definitely say that's part of it because there are a lot of people who thought like people who aren't familiar with lady gaga's work just assume she's like you know provocateur right pop diva and then they see her actually 
express human emotions and they're like oh my god I didn't know she was like that. I thought she was just a freak. Yeah. I think she's like, a, no, she was like this the whole time. She's a totally she's, talented person. Yeah. No, yeah. I love Lady Gaga. Yeah. She's classically trained. Yeah. You know, she she's, is. she's an incredible performer and that's what I don't, I don't want to take away from that. And I think critiquing her performance not to, uh, is, is hopefully not taking away from that. I think what she does in this movie is probably my favorite part about it. Yeah. I really did not dig Bradley Cooper, although the chemistry was there. Um, I did not dig what he was doing. It sounds like yours is kind of a bland fascination. Both of yours. It's like there's kind of a bland fascination with this movie, right? Because the, the parts of it are fascinating on paper, right? I mean, Bradley Cooper's directorial debut for a feature. Yeah, Lady right? Gaga's first big movie. A great cast, a uh, great crew working behind it. Um, but then it's also falling into the trap, it sounds like. I haven't seen it yet. It, fall, it falls but, into the trap of being a remake, and this right. is my issue with it. I think people will always look people will look back at this movie i can't whenever a movie gets be when people push it as like this is going to be an oscar movie this is going to be potential best picture winner i always ask myself what are people how are people going to look at this movie in five years how are people going to look at this movie in 10 years and will i think they? they're i think they're going to look back on it as being a nice hollywood movie yeah in this it's similar similar to la la land but i like la la land a lot more um but no one's people this is just going to be thrown up against the whole historical context of this was the fourth version of this movie and there will be probably be a fifth and that makes me want to talk about uh suspiria right now there which go. got it's listen to that you hear that that's the sound of joy over <laughs> a movie that um at 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 its core goes the distance it yes. goes it goes for exactly what it wants to do um i got the chance to see it yesterday um at you saw it at the third at the uh, on the 31st on the yeah 31st i saw October. it at the halloween opening music box showing that was sold out so that's what 750 people wow wow yeah it and was, i, I, knew I it was, was i was to. scared because i was i'm thinking okay there's the music box audience usually when it's like a 70 millimeter showing or mm-hmm. it's, it's an older movie they can be annoying super annoying they can be annoying because they have this you know pathological need to share their knowledge with everyone else right. by giggling like every time something classical shows up yeah or anytime anything like a piece of old technology they're like hee hee i remember yeah, when i saw speaking it. of gouging your eyes out with railroad <laughs> spikes <laughs> yeah it's so i was like oh it's halloween night i'm sure there's gonna be a bunch of drunk idiots who won't shut up like oh let's see suspiria let's see this two and a half hour art film yeah i remember when i saw vertigo on 70 millimeter and that was like a religious experience for me because I love Vertigo. There was a guy who felt the need that he was like, well, I better pull out my phone and show everybody that I'm getting the opening Saul Bass credits of fucking Vertigo. I was like, yeah. maybe don't. And like people are like, oh, actually, Hitchcock would use this later. And I'm just like, we get it. You go to the music box. <laughs> you like it. Yeah. All right. Uh, but Suspiria. Uh, but everyone that, was everyone shut up. So thank God. That's so good. And I, and that's the kind of movie that will shut people the fuck up because yeah. it is it is crazy. Talking uh, to you about it before, after at the end of the movie, <laughs> you were like it sounded like you were the at the end of an errand that almost bested you or something. Yeah. You know? I got I almost got there. Uh, for a little bit of context, Suspiria is a re, another remake remake of the 1977 film directed by Dario Argento, uh, classic of the giallo genre. Um, really pushed the envelope when it came to visual style and horror pushed the envelope in terms of the soundtrack as well we're going to be talking a little bit about soundtracks later um but suspiria has always been like this mystical thing for people especially horror fans this one uh directed by and i'm going to butcher the name here luca guadagnino 
Guadagnino, yeah. Guadalupe. Guadagnino. 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 Guadagnino, yeah. Guadagnino, who uh, was the director of the fantastic, I really like Call Me By Your Name. I know you recently had an article that you're I just didn't, like, didn't yeah, I, I finally, after almost a year, I've just decided, it. no, I don't, I, That's sorry. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. But directed by Luca Guadagnino and uh, starring Dakota Johnson. Um, and Tilda, Tilda Swinton, Swinton. And like um, seven thousand roles man yeah. T- tilda swinton is a perfect person oh. to put in a i don't know if she's, she's a person she's freaky she's freaky she's a god <laughs> i was gonna say alien but okay she is yeah no that's a way Could to look both. at her and also uh i was surprised uh chloe grace moritz for about two minutes yeah i i, I thought she was going to be in it more i i wasn't disappointed I was just like, oh, I thought she was going to, because she has a couple scenes. Yeah, she's in the opening. And I find it funny because, let me, you know, we don't want to give away too much because this is in the beginning of its theatrical run. Right. Yeah. Um, and please see it. Yeah, please see it. I, that's, let's get that out of the way right now. Um, please see it on big screen yeah. just so you can not know what just happened. I I mean, I my rule of thumb is see whatever you can on the big screen, but mm-hmm. especially something this out there. Yeah, um, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil where it goes, but it goes to some places where I'm just like, "What the hell is happening?" And yes. I wanted to just kind of shriek because I was so confused. Uh, especially seeing seeing in a giant dark room is something. Mm-hmm. So something I find interesting about this movie is that it uh, almost intentionally avoids its source material, like so to a, a pretty ridiculous degree at times. Yeah. Um, Insofar as there is no title card that actually says Suspiria. If you I think, think is there at the very is at the, it at she's the, she's walking through a there, station where it says yeah, you're Suspiria. Right, you're right. There's no actual title card. The title card that's given is uh it's like it says like um, like a, it's like a story in six in acts, six acts and, and an, an epilogue. epilogue. And then I think that's about it. And then they have title cards introducing each act, which I actually yes. liked because um this is a movie where i felt so suspended in time and i didn't know where i was through it the entire time so i kind of enjoyed the fact that they there were a couple moments where i was happy that i knew that there were six acts in an epilogue because maybe in another world i would have thought oh maybe it's ending oh wait Uh it's still going on yeah um there was one guy who um you could tell once the the title card for epilogue came up he threw his hands up and i think he just left um and I'm yeah, I'm gonna want to get back to this later. Just the bevy of reactions that I, I absorbed from it. Absolutely it's fascinating. Um, I really like the idea that they let you know that it is in six acts because for me it felt me it helped me feel the tension ratchet up and yeah. it, it goes. It starts. I mean, it's a pretty tense movie. I would say all throughout, especially with some of the uh, the images that you're getting. Yeah. Um. There's some stuff with you know early on. I, again, we're trying to avoid giving yeah. too much away about what this is about. But let me let me give the broad strokes here because it people should walk not walk into this expecting to see a straight remake of the original Suspiria. No, it's cuz I didn't know what was going on for a lot of it cuz it's so different. It's so it's so wildly different. Um but the broad strokes are basically a girl joins a troupe of uh of dancers in Berlin in um not, I want to say 69 just cuz I there's one scene where behind Dakota Johnson it says 15th April 1969. That's the yeah. only reason I knew that. Yeah, it's it's uh divided Berlin. Yeah, 
Yeah, so that's the wall is a motif. They yes. and another thing is like they talk about the war a lot. Just ambiguously, they say the war, which is either yes. it's like it's either World War Two from decades past or the ongoing Cold War right. or, or the conflicts within the confines. So it's a very tense setting. Yeah. Um, but this girl joins a dance troupe and basically um strange things begin to happen there are dancers that are experiencing certain things and um if you have any context from seeing the original suspiria the the broad strokes are all there yeah but what guadagnino does is so fiercely his own Mm -hmm. that i would have to you know what if dario argento were alive i would have to say and i don't want to speak for the dead but i feel like he'd be pretty impressed i feel like he'd be impressed with what he gleaned from that original idea sure because i think it takes it takes that uh original movie and goes somewhere so thematically rich that i wasn't even sure what to make of it and i love movies that do that because i'm just like it gives me it gives me uh work to do it gives me something to unpack instead of just like oh this is this this is that like connecting the dots immediately i like things that are just like well you know there's there's so many multiple interpretations and i think in your review you kind of dug into that a little bit like what does this mean? We don't even know yet. There's so much stuff going on. I mean, the main things I was as I was as I was seeing it, I was thinking, okay, there are shades of how. Luckily, they stay away from the the cliche of art imitates life and life imitates art. It's mostly I got points of like how art directly hurts other people and how it's just as harmful as real life violence mm-hmm. or um, hatred. Um, there are ideas of how. Um, it, it, there's ideas of how it plays with um, womanhood and the idea that and I don't th- this is not a spoiler to say that Tilda Swinton has I, I also wrote this Tilda Swinton has multiple roles in this movie yeah. and the only speaking part for a male character is played by Tilda Swinton made mm-hmm. up as a man um, and so that right away plays into her reputation as being sort of an androgynous figure mm-hmm. um, there's and you know motherhood and being a mother that is a, was is a that huge was really motif. big for me that's a huge motif um a mother is someone who can't be replaced or is a friend for everyone and can never be replaced um that's a huge motif um sort of like this the the idea of the sins of the past being product of men's destruction and then it having to be mm-hmm. recouped by the women in current in current day um but yeah. but in giving anyone that sense of agency um they're they have that they have a freedom to forge the future and then they're also damned with that responsibility mm-hmm. um and it goes into some truly wacky decisions i or some places i'm i was there were i couldn't really read the people that i was seeing it with as it was going on um as i after we saw it i kind of stumbled out and uh one person i saw it absolutely loved it and said he hadn't talked about something this much after seeing it since first reformed. Mm-hmm. Um, one person, like a couple of people, liked it but didn't love it. Um, one person was really mixed, and then one person I saw it with absolutely hated it, and she thought she felt like she was in there for three out like three days. Yeah, and she wanted to leave. And I think that's totally going to be most of the. It's going to be such a wide range of reactions. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think I think even call me by your name um garnered some of those reactions probably not as intense because it's a different it's a, it's an intense movie but a different type of intense and um i met i met some people that thought call me by your name was like 
pure beauty, pure cinema aesthetic and like this story, blah, blah, blah. And some people walked out. They're just like, God, that was really one of the most boring movies I've ever seen and really didn't just, – just didn't um, – click with it and i i think superior superior is going to be essentially the same yeah. i get because i saw it with my girlfriend and she was just like yeah i didn't like that very much she's like that felt like a really long movie i was like really because i felt i was pretty in it for almost the entire thing there were a couple moments where i my mind meandered a little bit but realistically speaking i was in it for the whole thing the original does that to people too though right i mean yeah, I yeah. Think it's in simpler, really different but... ways because the original is an exploitation movie. Yeah, right. it's a total snuff film. In yeah, the movie's ways. gnarly, and it's I love it. So though. it's so of its time. You couldn't do that. You couldn't make yeah. You that, couldn't make that in twenty eighteen. No, and, and have I don't it not think be problematic. Sh- yeah, and I don't think you should either. Do it's, you think this is a problematic movie in certain ways? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. And the thing, it's like this is going to sound horrible, but it's like it's also ambiguous enough to evade that. Yeah, and I don't think that that's the intention. I think that there there are a lot of very specific intentions going on throughout the entire thing. Um, I mean, some people, the most common complaint I saw from people was that they thought it was just dull and boring and maybe confusing. Um, and I don't agree. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't. I don't think. Um, I think boring would be a. I, I think that's to the uh, the uninterested viewer. I think I think a person that finds Suspiria boring probably sh- does not like that type of film to begin with. Right. Sure. Um, which is fine. It's fine to be like, yeah, this is already BS. And I'm like, that's fine. There's there's millions of types of movies out there. You don't have to like every single one. Not every type of one needs to be for you. But um, it's, yeah. if people, I would rather people be angry about it than be like, oh, it was boring. Because right. I don't think it's boring. I think people, if people are like pissed off about it, I'd rather that be the reaction. Than, oh, I'd much rather people be angry than ambivalent. Um, I mean, because it's, I mean, it, the thing is, I wasn't, I also wasn't, I don't know if people who, people who aren't, super into something that goes so off the walls as this movie does mm-hmm. i the thing is the movie also doesn't telegraph that and i lo- I, I like that because it starts off mm-hmm. a, a slightly more traditional quote-unquote traditional just it, i feel it's more like a polanski movie um there's just there's a lot of stuff going on and you can't stop it and you don't really know what's happening and everything's kind of like this suspended dreamscape mm-hmm. um but it's all set in reality so you're just gonna go with it anyways sort of thing um, I want to real quickly just bring bring this up. Uh, this is from the Chicago Reader. Um, there, there was uh, Andrea Thompson wrote a little piece on on mm-hmm. this on the thirtieth of October. The new Suspiria manages to be about women's power without being feminist, which is I think is really interesting. She's got a lot. I, I want to bring up this paragraph right here. Movies about witches often act as a litmus test of how comfortable we are with female power and how women choose to wield it. Argento's leaned into fear, choosing to position the older women without male companions as the ultimate threat to the young, innocent heroine who shows a shy interest in another man at the school. Guadagnino's film could have been an indication of how far we've come in considering such matters over the last four decades. Instead, it takes what's obviously meant as a subversion and likewise likewise leans into the very themes it seeks to transcend. I don't think it ever thinks it's being subversive, and I think that's the point. The point is that we have not come far. I feel like it's only subversion is that it's so radically different from the original. That's but- the thing. Like it's, it, I don't, I don't know if people would see this as subversive if it were not the second 
incarnation of this story. But within the context of reboots, I mean, it so- it does sound pretty subversive. With all the reboots, I mean, yeah, that's no, what just, we've been just, talking about. I right? would say in relation to being structurally and uh, visually different, that's its subversion. Right. But, Matt, I agree in the sense that, like, it's still... A little bit. It's still got a lot of the same themes of the original Suspiria. Yeah, but I mean, the, I mean, but it's they're not handled in the same way. In that this movie, no. this movie is very blatant in terms of its 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 worldview is that we haven't made progress, and that's the problem. Because there's also another theme that I thought was really fascinating about it is there's this there's this underling the entire movie of it posits quite provocatively and depressingly that evil is necessary mm-hmm. within humanity so how much do we have to give into evil for you know for everything to progress as normal but without hurting everyone just just enough for it to be mm-hmm. negative there's a lot of you know there's a lot of abstract stuff going on here that sounds super pretentious but i think that there really is but i mean it's and also going to the the idea of it doesn't you know have anything progressive there's there's a lot of stuff going on here like voting is a huge mm-hmm. theme here um and your decisions matter and i think it's it it also you know talks about the fact that and any character specifically it opens with chloe grace moretz who's you know in hysterics and she's screaming about how people wanted to put things in her and she's at risk of being possessed and she didn't want to be an asset to the collective and so she was immediately disbanded Mm -hmm. and which is interesting and she suffers for it yeah especially in the context of the cold war and everything like that i think that's where the historical context can seep in yeah and so that idea of anyone who has any sort of individuality is immediately um exercised by society and then they're damned for it that also goes in the fact that we haven't changed Mm -hmm. and um your decisions matter whether or not people realize it and then go vote. Yeah. Um, It's amazing to hear you guys describe the movie like this because it's really in line with a lot of the things I've been reading about Tom York's score for the movie. Oh God. And we'll get it. We'll get into the score a little bit later. Right. Um, Well, I think that it would be a good, I mean, I think we should talk about Halloween next, stay on the reboot train. And I think that speaking about music would be a good way to tie all these, a discussion of all of these three together. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. So, um, with Tom, you know Tom York, again, it's the 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 soundtrack to that. It's twenty eight tracks, twenty eight tracks, and very much similar to the film itself in that it takes broad broad ideas, but is completely its own, um, which is really interesting. But then we get Halloween, which is a reboot that I feel like splits the difference between something like A Star Is Born, probably closer on the end of A Star Is Born than Suspiria. I would say it's about as far as you can be from a radical reimagining, but yeah. it is a re- it's not a reimagining. It's like it tries its best to push its own uh, franchise forward. So Yeah, I mean, this is retcon city. Oh, God. Like, the idea of... It's like that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I mean, the idea of here with, with, is this the eleventh in the franchise? I believe so. I want to say okay. number eleven. Jesus Christ! And we still didn't get Scream Five, and I'm still bitter. The um, the eleventh in the franchise, and they've decided no, nothing except for the first movie actually happened. Well, I mean, you have to do that. I know at it this makes point. sense. That's I just badass. Think it's, it's funny in a and way. It's, not the it's f- just sort of like fuck all of you. And it's not really <laughs> the first time they've done it. The H20 was more or less a retcon of this 
magnitude it only it picked and chose i think it took one and two mm-hmm. as as canon and then made h20 and then halloween resurrection follows that and then there's the rob zombie one yeah which and then is in resurrection she dies yeah laurie strode dies in yeah. resurrection and they're like shit now we can't do this one yeah so then they have to retcon it yeah so let's let's give the broad details here halloween 2018 uh directed by david gordon green many yeah, people know random. yeah what a weird career he's had. I was had. like, okay. Because well, he's made some good small movies. He's also made some disasters. Yeah. Does anyone remember The Sitter with Jonah yep. Hill? Oh, yeah. Does Your Highness. Tra- and John C. Riley. Ooh, he made the... Ooh, he made Your Highness. Ooh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, well, because a lot of it stems from him making the decision to do Pineapple Express, which is, <laughs> yeah. I think, like pretty much the peak of the stoner comedy for that time. He brought he brought some like actual tact to it and a lot of skill to that movie that I think is overlooked. Um, but I know it's not for everybody. It's a total mm-hmm. goofy fucking Seth Rogen movie. But um, I love it. I think Pineapple Express is really funny. But he also did like these beautiful art films, like George Washington. Um, back in like 2001, he was supposed to be the next Terry Malick. He was really supposed to be like this next, you know, Malick esque like super, you know, shots of wheat. <laughs> and stuff like that soft focus and everything like that but uh david gordon green uh the script written by green and danny mcbride there was a third person but uh big names on it are david gordon green and danny mcbride yeah. who we all know from pineapple, pineapple express. express and uh other many uh big comedy movies this is the end uh and it brings back Jamie Lee curtis to the franchise and uh essentially as as was mentioned cuts out everything except for the original halloween this is supposed to be a direct sequel and i'm gonna say i think it mostly works i think it mostly works as a direct sequel i think they tried to elevate the movie a bit by introducing um concepts of trauma Mm -hmm. and concepts of like the uh inevitability of time and um that kind of it's a little bit of a trope but the whole like how uh how different is laurie from michael myers in a sense and how different are we from michael myers in terms of being like voyeurs and killers and that sort of thing on the inside well we can die probably yeah realistically <laughs> we mm. can die that's, that for, is a difference that's a big difference that's that just michael one. myers basically can't die <laughs> uh so matt um thoughts how'd you feel about this i really liked it for a while i overall i thought it was okay i agree with you i give it a b plus i'd say b plus is the best thing i can say about it wow yeah i gave it a if i'm gonna equal that out i think i i I would give it a c plus interesting just i mean i i the thing is there are obviously parts that work mostly the simplicity of it i'm just it doesn't lean too much into nostalgia, which I was so scared it was going to, and it yeah. doesn't at all. It bounces that part really well. Yeah, but then, then there are also just really, you know, classical genre set pieces. When you first see Michael Myers going for the prowl on Halloween night, yeah. it's just this long tracking shot of maybe, like, two minutes, and it's it's chilling, and it's it genuinely is. suspense. And it uh, beats that lady to death with a hammer, it's, and you don't even see it. Yeah, you I, hear it. I like that, too. It's not... It's not, you know, ex- excessive ever. No. But it's there are points that are really well done. And then there's also a lot of boring bullshit that I... I mean, I remember because there's Jamie... Lee, there's Laurie Strode, and then there is her daughter, and then there is her, her granddaughter. granddaughter. And so her granddaughter is introduced pretty early on, and you see her and her two friends 
going to school one day, and I thought that the two friends were meant to be sort of just side characters. Like, these are people that she is surrounded with. And then they come up later in the movie, and I'm like, oh, shit, they matter. Yeah. I'm like, I forgot you existed. And then when they have their scenes, I didn't give a shit at all because they're idiots. And they're yeah. so stupid. I think, I think their scene in particular is probably one of my least favorite in the entire movie. Um, yeah, it's like, I mean, these characters are dumbasses. Yeah. And it's surprising because the thing is, this movie has a lot of shoehorned in humor. And it's never oh my self- God. And it's never it's so bad. And it's never self-aware. At the very most, it's it's ironic. But it's never self-aware at all. And so it doesn't ever even... Tr- I, don't, I don't think it even tries to justify the idiocy of its characters. No. That was so, going to be my question. Is it like earnest stupidity? Because you'd think Jamie Lee, Car- Jamie no, Lee she, Curtis's no, character she's, would be she's smart. she's fantastic. No, she's fine. She, uh, I mean, like, her character's fine. Yeah, she's, her character's She does fine. a great job in the movie. But her character is the voice of reason but it's also like you can only have one genius and that doesn't really cancel out a million idiots yeah a million really stupid people um i think the scene we're we're gonna refer to is specifically uh a scene involving um laurie strode's granddaughter her friend is stuck at home stuck babysitting this kid and michael myers attacks and it's full of so many like dumb almost scary movie level jokes yeah, there are points where I think it veers into like, like Wayne's Brothers. Yeah, it's not even good self parody. The thing is, like, there are moments of like inserts of comedy that I actually think work well to humanize the characters. Yeah, just in terms of like, there's a scene of like, oh, the babysitter talking to the kid she's babysitting, and that they have, was fine. They have a little exchange, and I think that that was pleasant. But then there's also stupid cutaway bullshit, like the police officers talking about nothing, or. Yeah. Like we get, we get it, Danny McBride. You're funny. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and so it doesn't handle the tone, and so it no. just seems. And and then you also, when that is also placed against the really what feels like a very long third act. By the time you reach the conclusion, I didn't care. Oh, really? I love. For Which me, was, the third well, act totally redeemed. I mean, it was those an, bits it was inherently second. satisfying, and I liked it in yeah. theory. But I I was like okay let's let's come on let's hurry this up and it's not long it's not like it's a long movie no but it i mean it also had to do with oh i also forgot there's also two journalist characters towards the beginning and i thought that was pretty interesting framing device there it's sure but they don't do anything with it and again they're dummies yeah they're really they're just they're just assholes too they're just fucking dicks like i I feel like they were supposed to be the characters that you want to get killed like i feel like in in a lot of like a real yeah and it's they were like a like a c movie version of like gail weathers or something yeah it's like she's like i'm a reporter and i need to get a scoop from the survivor yeah he's such a fuckhead those those two yeah even those two podcasters i thought i and i thought the guy podcaster was gonna be like really the worst but that girl ended up being pretty bad too like she was a total opportunist like trying to pay yeah they're both pretty bad and then yeah yeah they were both pretty bad and then also a lot of I, I think a lot of the reasons I didn't like those characters also is that they existed only as voice boxes for exposition. Um, yeah. And what was sad is that Jamie Lee Curtis has to deliver a lot of that expositional that expositional dialogue, which is gratingly obvious. But she does such a good job with it. Where I was, that you don't mind. I was barely able to look over it. But then there's also stupid bullshit. Like there's a scene, maybe towards the end of Act Two, where they have another. Uh, psychotherapist character come in and she looks at him and says you're the new dr loomis and i was i just went 
yeah it's it it pisses me off when a movie you does things that are like it's you can see the gears turning you can see all the bits and pieces like i think the most that's a really gratingly obvious one and then the other one is the quote-unquote twist (laughs) right before the beginning of the third act where should uh, we talk about this honestly i think we can at this point i mean we're we're gonna get close to the end of its theatrical run within the next two weeks right um there is a scene spoiler alert skip ahead you know if you don't want to hear this uh there's a scene where the new dr loomis essentially turns on uh laurie strode's granddaughter he's supposed to be taking care of her he turns on her so that he can see what it's like to to kill as michael myers because all of a sudden he's like really into there's like subtle insinuations that he's obsessed with michael but like not enough to justify that kind of a twist and also you can see why they did it they literally made that twist happen to get her from one point to another yeah and it pissed me off so much now, luckily, I enjoyed so much of the other parts of this movie that it allowed me to look over a lot of that shit, especially the tonal problems. I think anybody who watched this movie can say, yeah, there were some there's some tonal shit. Even if you enjoyed it in the moment because it was a moment of level, levity, I guarantee you people will go back and watch this and be like, mm, that doesn't really play super well now that I'm seeing it again. Mm-hmm. But... uh Overall, I mean, I I think we'd be um, we'd be remiss in not mentioning how much of a hit this was. Yeah, uh, for Blumhouse, for Miramax of all companies, Ugh. I forgot that was still happening. Yeah. yeah, holy shit, that exists still. Yeah, um, Universal, I believe this is yeah, they, Universal, Miramax, and Blumhouse, Blumhouse produced it, and um, it only cost ten million. I think ten, domest- yeah. domestically, it's pushing one hundred thirty million. I, we've as of November as of today we're recording it uh, as of November second two thousand eighteen one hundred and forty two million dollars oh, domestically million. Uh, getting close to two hundred million worldwide nice that's Good for like Danny huge. McBride so we're getting another one it's gonna happen now because this was such a success even though just, there's such a finality to it so it's like hey they they did that ju- that was their backup. They yeah. were just like, and it's and but that's the thing with the rest of the Halloween franchise too. It always really does like, oh, this could be the last one if it needed to be. Yeah, but it never is. Yeah, there. Were, I mean, and this is sort of backtracking to what, what you brought up about this movie, also touching on trauma. I thought it was so fascinating to l- see her talk about it mm-hmm. forty years later, and it was fascinating and really, really touching. But then again, it, they didn't do enough with it. Um, I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis's return to this franchise is really the the like storyline. It and like, really is. She bring, I think she brings down the house f- for a lot of her scenes when she's not being forced to do a bunch of exposition. Makes you wonder, like, why the hell did she even come back, though? Well, because, I mean, look at her story as a person. She's the she's the scream queen. Like, her mom was Janet Lee. She was Marion Crane. Right. And so she was born, in a sense, to be a scream queen. So she's in Halloween. She's in The Fog. She's in Prom Night. Her whole early career is defined by being in horror movies. Right. She doesn't even like all that much. She likes being... She likes acting. Yeah. I she mean, enjoyed her experience. She loves John. She's a big fan of John Carpenter. But, like, that's she was why just I'm like, curious this is my she, life. That's why I'm curious why she decided to revisit such a... Well, and it's not the first time. She came back for H20. Right. But how long ago was that? That was, tw- that was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. From yeah. Right. I, I'm I'm just really surprised that she even came back. I think that's why it's such a big story. I think it's... She might... She probably realizes that 
this is a huge thing for a lot of people. Um, actually, if we're going to get into the weeds on a little bit, um, I've got my copy of Halloween is the 35th anniversary of version on Blu-ray put up by Anchor Bay. And there's a really interesting documentary shot by her uh her kid i want to say it's her son that follows her as she makes her first appearance at like a horror convention in like you know a certain number of years like 20 years and it's really interesting to hear her talk about her relationship with halloween because it's like this blessing and a curse Mm -hmm. because it defined her career. It made her famous outside of just being Janet Lee and Tony uh, Curtis's daughter. Right. And um, it really brought her career. It elevated her career. She got to be part of a landmark moment in not just horror cinema or independent cinema, but cinema in general. This was a, I mean, the original Halloween was like the most successful independent movie of all time for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being part of that is wild. But then, you know, she's got this complication where she's like, A, she doesn't like horror movies. And B, she's tired of just being Laurie Strode. Yeah. But sometimes you have to embrace it. And I feel like that's a big theme of this movie. And that's why I enjoyed it so much is that you can shave down a lot of the other stuff. I feel like they should have shaved down a lot of the other stuff and really pushed like Jamie Lee versus Michael Myers. Yeah. It should have been much more Terminator 2 than it actually was. Yeah, there's a lot there's a, a much more interesting look at trauma and revisiting one's past than a lot of you would think that there was walking out of the theater after yeah. seeing it. They did they did a pretty pretty damn good job. I think this is probably the best Halloween sequel that's been made realistically and that's not that's a pretty low bar yeah, I was say, right. is that saying a lot? but like no. i th- i think on a certain level it is i mean sure. especially when you're going up against again uh, a movie that changed cinema in a lot for in a lot of ways all right uh matt sapola we can read all your reviews over at filmmonthly.com and follow you at twitter uh that's sapola at sapola matt on twitter um anything else coming up any more essays uh not that i can think of right now i mean there's that other thing on Frameland, which is frame dot land which is why i I finally write about call me by your name and i'm Mm -hmm. just like here i'm gonna put this behind me i totally get where white people like it that's okay but i don't like it and that's okay too all right fantastic well thank you so much for joining us again uh this has been your no coast border review for the month of october uh we'll be right back in just a bit with our friend he is from the sound sessions podcast here at wgm plus michael heideman gonna be talking about soundtracks with us for a bit here on no coast cinema your guide to cinema here in the city of chicago i'm tom hush and i'm connor cornelius be back in just a moment Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM Plus, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we've got another great guest for you here in the studio. Uh, I feel like recently we've been talking about soundtracks a lot, especially yep. with the release of Suspiria, mm-hmm. Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino. Okay. It's going to trip me up for the rest of the day. That's okay. Guadagnino. Tom. It's a long name. There's a lot of letters in it. <laughs> 
So I'm not much for reading. Um, <laughs> I can't. No, read. that's not true. Uh, but so, there's another name that's associated with the movie who did the score, which is much easier to pronounce for you. Yes, Tom York from <laughs> uh, from Radiohead, uh, doing his first film score, following in the footsteps of sorts of his bandmate Johnny Greenwood, who has done a lot of film scores for Paul Thomas Anderson films, most notably for me. There will be blood, which I think is a ten out of ten top tier film score. But just thinking about Tom York's hype, the hype for Tom York's Suspiria soundtrack was almost as big as the film itself. I would say, yeah, absolutely, because there's the you know any time that Radiohead or Tom York or somebody like that. I mean, they're like the new Beatles, basically, right? Any time yeah, they announce totally. that something that's going to be happening that they're doing, it's going to be big news. Yeah, in the music world, at it's going to be written all over Pitchfork with uh, a wry sense of humor and a detached sense of excitement. Exactly. I so, mean, <laughs> nothing less from the tastemakers over at Pitchfork, right? <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting too because a lot of people were wondering, at least. I was maybe when the movie when there will be blood came out because when you think of Radiohead you think of Tom York probably more so than Johnny Greenwood at least in the past and then you see Johnny Greenwood's the one that's going out and doing scoring all yeah. these major films diversifying so like it's been so long since Johnny Greenwood's been doing it but like I feel like the question on everyone's minds has been where's Tom York in all this business and now we have him so uh, in order to help us with this conversation we're bringing in one of our good pals uh, from a podcast here on WGM plus it's called sound sessions fantastic show covering all things music uh, lots of great interviews with very interesting artists and we have the host right here he's also the executive producer on uh, the Patty Vasquez show with Andrea Darlis Mr. Michael Heideman how's it going Michael what's going on guys it's an honor and a pleasure to be on NoCo cinema that is a that is a first. I think yeah. you're the Jesus. first person to say that. That can't be true because I was thinking about this in my walk over to the studio and I was thinking, man, if I had the brain that Connor and Tom had about <laughs> movies with that I had with music or anything else in the entire world, it would be it'd make my life much easier. You guys are savants when it comes to, I to like movies. That. Wow. Please. Please like, continue. We'll have to take that, <laughs> get a quote of that. So you host Sound Sessions on WGM+. Give us a little bit of an overview of Sound Sessions. So Sound Sessions is your go-to place for all things music. We live in this amazing city called Chicago, which we have artists coming from all over the world to come and play for us, basically, in our backyard. So why not just sit down with them and see what makes them tick? What's behind the music? You know, a lot of people talk about the albums and what's going on with their careers, but I like asking questions sometimes about what was their favorite childhood toy or... Or what do they eat on the road? And it's kind of getting inside the brain of these music artists that that I kind of adore. Because if you think about it, music is just this amazing thing. And tying it back to the movies, I mean, they go hand in hand. Because what other form or art medium, besides maybe a painting, but I I don't really get down with paintings too often, (laughs) can make you feel senses just from sounds and your sight. It's, It's an incredible thing. So we bring in these artists from Chicago, outside of Chicago, we highlight indie artists and upcoming smaller acts throughout the city. And the cool thing is we work in, at WGN Radio, so we have the chance to sit with them in the studio. And sometimes we give away tickets. Uh, we try to do the social media thing. We, add, we, we do this thing called Two Guys, One Album 2, where we go over an album song by song. We just sat down with the guy who discovered John Mayer and went over his debut al- John Mayer's debut album with the guy who discovered him, which was kind of cool. That's wild. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it yeah. was... It was 
that's pretty awesome because like it was you 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 don't know what kind of questions you're going to ask him and then when he talks about it, he goes yeah you know i had john mayer sleep on my couch when i when he first came to see if we were going to vibe together I'm like vibe together. I'm like, what? What did he eat in the morning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is this is a man who has uh, man who has everything. Yeah, yeah. man who has everything now. But at some point, he was just couch couch sleeping. Yeah, Maybe he, he was eating the uh, everything bagel because you are what you eat, right? So. Yeah, mm. Mm. your bagel is a wonderland. Mm. Actually, that was the first. <laughs> that was his first title of that song. Actually, we found that out later in the podcast. And, oh my god! <laughs> so, sound sessions. Uh, also, like Noco Cinema is available on WGM Plus. Um, let's get into soundtracks here. So, Mike, I wanted to ask you, what is your experience when you go to the movies? You know, you're a super musically minded guy. Mm -hmm. Um, do you, how much do you pay attention to the soundtrack? You know, it's a beautiful thing that directors can do when you don't even notice the soundtrack sometimes in, in these movies. And you mentioned there would be blood by, uh, Johnny Greenwood who made that, um, that great soundtrack. And that's one where you're like, wow. Did that even have a soundtrack? Because I was just feeling it the entire time. And that's what you really look into with music. But then at the same time, uh, when you're watching a movie, yeah, you do pay attention to it. You pay attention to, you know, the opening the opening tracks or the opening scene and how it just billows with excitement if you're watching an action movie and it's like dun 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 yeah. and, and you almost want that you want that kind of feeling so then when you see a movie like uh, The Great Gatsby which put uh, primarily a hip hop vibe with their soundtrack you're like huh that's kind of different, but I, I can see how it works. Um, like Boz Lerman, he he uses such a weird kind of thread with his with his movies where you're like, I the soundtrack is so in your face that you can't deny it. Yeah. So it's super important with movies. And you know, I, I, to be honest, my favorite show is The Office without a soundtrack, <laughs> and it almost makes me uncomfortable when I hear music in it. So you're always aware of it. It's it's a really cool thing, and, and I'm I'm super excited to dive into these these soundtracks today. Yeah, Boz Lerman, an interesting uh, person to bring up. He's like the king of decontextualizing music in a sense because he'll just use. Like I, I know uh, Moulin Rouge, a lot of the songs are just like existing songs that he's redone to and decontextualize them from being like a Bowie song mm -hmm. and put them into a regular song uh, like or put them into his movie. Um, I like I like what you had to say about like sometimes you don't the way that uh, a soundtrack makes you feel especially you know using there will be blood as our kind of roadmap like you don't even know it's there you're just feeling it the whole time and connor before we uh started you were talking a little bit about how a lot of the movies that are out right now we're talking about like suspiria halloween mid 90s how they use the soundtrack way differently. Right. Like, there's so many different ways that you can use a soundtrack in a movie. So, earlier in the episode, when we were talking with the great Matt Cipolla, we started talking about A Star is Born, and I, I, we could also probably roll in, like, the Bohemian Rhapsody biopic sure. into mm -hmm. this, because the way that those movies use music is, it's like the body paragraph of an essay that you're reading about this life, right? It's like the, that's kind of why you go to see the movie, is to see these blown-out performances of these songs, right? But then you go to a movie like Halloween where you have Michael Myers and he has basically a theme song that like 5-4 rhythm that John Carpenter composed right and that turns into like a theme song for a pop culture icon it makes him like a pop culture icon overnight right mm -hmm. he becomes a celebrity of sorts 
and that's used in a completely different way. And then you have a movie like Tom York's Suspiria podcast or podcast, fucking Jesus soundtrack, <laughs> um, where it's turning something. It's really mirroring the surreal avant-garde visuals that you're seeing, and it's marrying the two things together. I mean, I was just listening to it on the car ride over here, and what I love about horror is the feeling of being it being unsettled by the things that you're watching and i think that that suspiria really mirrors the theme of what the narrative or lack thereof in the film is trying to tell you and it's informing you both with your sight and with your ears which is a kind of a weird way to describe it maybe not perfectly descriptive but that was how it made me feel and then you have mid-90s which, as the name would suggest, set in the in the mid '90s, and the soundtrack of that movie is uses basically a framing device to give you context for the setting. Yeah, it tries to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross give you a little bit of like trying to get you into that mode, right? Because I mean, so much of the the mid '90s, like trying to get you into a time and place, has to do with what you're hearing too, and uh, the the art of watching a movie is more than just what you're seeing and more than just a story. It's that atmosphere that you get from hearing music. Um, Michael, I wanted to ask you, are there, are there particular soundtracks that you've heard that you, that stand out to you both on as a, as a film viewer, but also as a music listener, like some that you go and revisit just to listen to the soundtrack. That's a great, great question. And we were talking about this a little bit uh, throughout the week, uh, Tom. And I, you know, when I was young and growing up, music was was just inching into my life. And, and to be honest, all I had to look forward to, because there was no iTunes or anything, were these soundtracks that I found. And a lot of my favorite bands came from the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack or, uh, or what I was listening to with... <laughs> Okay, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about the first single I ever bought, and I think it was uh, Aqua Barbie Girl. And oh, I, wow. <laughs> Excellent sure. choice. Why is everybody's first thing that they buy just something that you look back and have to laugh about? Just, it's, it's always ridiculous, because you're like, what was, what was I thinking? But at the time, you were like all in about it. You were yeah, right. all in. Uh, you know, and I love how you mentioned... Um, uh, the fact that it lays the bed, and, and you were talking about how Bohemian Rhapsody was just, you know, kind of uh, like an, like the body of a paragraph, like for the uh, for for a movie. And then I was thinking about Spice World, and I was like, <laughs> of course, <laughs> as you as you would. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I wouldn't know any of these songs, nor be a fan of the Spice Girls, if it wasn't for that darn movie. And it just shows you how important music is that you can create an entire movie, a two-hour movie about just an album or a song or a band and uh, yeah like you said like the question asked um what so- what soundtracks really came out to me and it was it was the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack which I always go back to it was the first time that I heard bands like the Butthole Surfers and Garbage and Everclear and all these bands that just blew up but I knew them just from just that one song I knew them from that one scene in the movie and now when I look back at these soundtracks, it's like, oh, yeah, that's when he gets stabbed. Mm, that yeah. song kicked in. And I'm like, wow, that really means something to me. And so that's why I can go back and listen to those soundtracks. I can't think of any that I can just listen to all the way through. Oh, you know what? I can. Do you guys remember when Forrest Gump came out? 
and how much that soundtrack blew up. Okay, I'm I'm gonna date yeah. ourselves a little bit here. That was like maybe a year after I was born. <laughs> yeah. No. Yes. No. Yes. Well, I was I was I was still pretty young too. But that but that mo- that soundtrack was a double um double disc soundtrack of all the greatest songs from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. And it was just basically an oldies compilation. It was like MeTV, which is a radio station here in Chicago, on on disc. And um, <laughs> and, and when that came out, I just played it over and over and over again. And now whenever I'm whenever I hear Jefferson Airplane or Creedence Clearwater Revival, I'm like, oh yeah, that's when they were in Vietnam and Forrest Gump. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's well, it's wild how much we can tie the the song, whether it be uh, an instrumental soundtrack, an original right. soundtrack. Or, you know, a constructed soundtrack. We can tie it to the movies. Um, I think some uh, soundtracks that do that a lot for me are like Quentin Tarantino soundtracks. Like oh, you hear yes. stuck you hear Stuck in the Middle with You by Steeler's Wheel, and the first thing you can picture is Michael Madsen going to cut off a cop's ear. Right. And you can't mm-hmm. you can't divorce those two things because it gives you context for the song. And I like that it introduces you to a lot of stuff you might not listen to prior to. I mean like I, especially with those uh, things like the Forrest Gump soundtrack or almost famous dazed and confused. I remember watching those movies and being like, Oh, this is a cool song. Mm-hmm. I like wonder what that is. And then you do start listening to Jefferson airplane and you do get a little bit into like Zeppelin Aerosmith. And it gives you not just a, um, it gives you not just the song, but also maybe a little bit of context, especially yeah. when you're, watching a movie that takes place in 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 our case like the 70s or just the 20th century in general these are time periods that we are divorced from inherently just by just by time itself but being able to watch and have a context for what these songs meant to people Mm -hmm. and what they continue to mean to people is just fascinating and it makes the soundtrack such a big deal yeah i have a question for you guys are there any songs that you can specifically think about in your head that make you just feel cool when you listen to it when you put it on your headphones because i because you mentioned Quentin Tarantino and holy smokes I can't believe I overlooked him the master of the soundtrack yeah holy smokes do you guys remember when the song girl you'll be you'll be a woman soon from yeah. by urge overkill came oh, on yeah. during pulp fiction oh yeah you're like oh my gosh man so that's wild that's the end or or the ki- feel cool even like the kill bill soundtrack when you hear that like whistling um yeah the whistle the, the western whistle <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. It's freaky. It's it's awesome. Or even like looking back at old um Clint Eastwood songs and I can't remember the song that he had in The Good the Bad and the Ugly, but it's like uh, the- dun 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 dun. Yeah, Ennio Morricone. Can you can you even Oh, that's that who sang it? That, well, that's the uh that's composer. the composer, yeah, yeah, Ennio Morricone and he actually ended up doing um the soundtrack for he did he got credited for Django Unchained and I believe he did a little bit of uh, the Hateful Eight. Oh my! Both God. Tarantino, both westerns too. I mean, it, Ennio Morricone defined the sound of the western. Incredible what he did with music because when you're listening to that, you're just like, "Shit's going down," <laughs> it's, it, and it's just it's just from like a from like a pan flute that you're yeah. listening to, right? Or like or like a little bit of a drum beat, like dun da da dun. How cool is it that music can just give you that feeling of you're like, oh, it gives me chills down my spine. When you were just doing that, it made me think of that scene in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, where they're in Moria, and you just hear the the drums in that, and then it's like a 5-4 beat. It's yeah. like, 
dope, dope, mm-hmm. dope, dope. And you just know that that's the, there's nothing else in it except for that. And you just feel that and you're like, oh man, something's about to happen. <laughs> well, let's, let's look at, uh, the idea of certain composers or certain artists, uh, defining the sound of, of a particular genre, because you've got Ennio Morricone, you hear his work from the, the man with no name trilogy, all that spaghetti Western work. You know, the the ecstasy of gold and everything like that. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Didn't he do the Battle of Algier as well? He may have, yeah, because that was an Italian so. film. Um, but isn't it weird that we have different composers that give you the sound of a genre, like an amorphous idea of things? So, like, let's say Hans Zimmer has recently become the king of, like, the this kind of like Sci-fi, science fit the, yeah. the genre of blockbuster film because you've got his work on the dark knight trilogy mm. you've got uh stuff with like interstellar he gave us the christopher nolan's doorbell <laughs> yeah <laughs> you ring the doorbell at his house <laughs> but it's just strange because it became such a trend and it got to the point where other composers just copy it because now people have this kind of shorthand. Mm-hmm. They're like when you hear the big, the big bass, you know it's going to be an intense action scene, mm-hmm. and you know just like Hans Zimmer, right? Isn't that weird how we can create these connections in our brain? I I can't believe it. It is really strange to think that the you can just start to associate your expectation with something that's happening on screen that you're perceiving with your eyeballs based on something that you're perceiving. With your ear holes. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, totally, man. My, my ear holes are just reverberating They're with the sounds of the Zim. Yeah. It, it plays into my argument that I make with people that I think that filmmaking is kind of the ultimate art form in a lot of ways because it requires a synthesis of so many different things. Um, it requires a synthesis of visual art, sound writing and even like you know if we architecture when it comes to building sets and things like that uh it just results in uh an experience that hits so many different senses and can fire off so many different synapses in your brain um i want to get back into a little bit of cultural context for soundtracks because i find that to always be the most interesting thing because people have favorite soundtracks and they're just like oh this is the best of all time um one that I think about a lot, unfortunately, is the soundtrack to Garden State. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. yeah, because Garden State's not aging well. But. It really hasn't. It re- which is sad because when it came out, it was such an indie, you know, thing. It kind of defined the uh, what people thought indie people were like for a really long time. And there's that moment where uh, Manic Pixie Dream Portman. You know, she takes off her headphones and she's just like, oh, you've never heard the shins. Oh, this is going to change your life. Puts on Zach Braff's head and he hears new slang. And that was really a defining moment for a lot of people. Most of all the shins, Mm -hmm. because then all of a sudden they Mm -hmm. achieved mainstream popularity. But looking back on that soundtrack, I feel like a lot of it seems kind of passe. Do you guys ever get that with the soundtrack? You look back and you're like, oh, my God, it's. It has this song on it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about <clears throat> when I uh, I first heard about MGMT through uh, that movie, the gambling movie with like Kevin Spacey. Oh, 21. Yes, 21. And there's the scene where they're going over the bridge to New York and they're playing Time to Pretend. 
And that was the first time that I had heard of that band. I hadn't listened to Oracular Spectacular yet, but I recently rewatched it with my family. And uh, I that scene where they're going across the bridge plays and you get the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get that thing and then it's just like this rollicking adventure. And I was just like, oh, fuck. I, I'm tired of this. I can't. I'm tired of this song. Do you like are there overused songs you think in soundtracks? No, you're saying that Hall and Oates, like uh, you make my dreams come true. Yeah, that is that the scene... most uh, overused song of all time. Oh, yeah, it's almost become cliche in the fact that I mean, look at 500 Days of Summer. Anytime that there's a good montage scene or anything like that, it's always you make my dreams come true. That's a really good one, or um, uh. It, it, like songs can become jokey where they look are, they were really cool at one time and now it's just hilarious like you make my dreams come true also another one is the the song from ferris bueller's day off i think they even joke about that in it's always sunny they absolutely do that's the day bow bow song so it's 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 hard to you know really hold on to that moment because you want it to be a cool everlasting soundtrack and sometimes people are like all right buddy it's not going to be that way i think in about five years um the shins albums or like the Coldplay songs that are on the garden state yeah soundtrack are going to be like all right so you're a sad lonely guy and yeah. you're, and you're sitting in your room uh that's just going to be a hilarious notion in a few years but that yeah. that soundtrack at the time the garden state one it's it's interesting you brought that up because when i was in high school and i'm dating myself again and i'm about to uh later on i wrote down a, a um a soundtrack that I think will just blow your minds in a little bit. But when I was in high school, the Garden State movie came out, and my teacher, my English teacher, Mr. Marinson, was like a guy who was like 24 at the time, and we're like, whoa, he's old. He's old. He's old and wise because he made he made every single one of his classes mm. watch Garden State like on our english hour time like during our classes we had to watch it and then he made every single person in the class a mixtape of the garden state uh soundtrack that is too much yeah that that's was, a lot he went he went a little <laughs> overboard and you're saying if i went back to him now and i said remember when he made us all watch garden state and he's like oh that was a mistake yeah <laughs> so it's, but it's just it, that's like the great soundtrack of just the Zach Braff at the time, I'm sure, was very, very depressed, and he was lonely, and he wanted to be very deep with that. So he made the compilation of that Garden Track soundtrack, and he's like, you know what? No matter what, I, I, this is this is kind of like my swan song as far as movies go. Yeah, and you could you could tell that, but now it doesn't keep up because now it's kind of cheesy. Yes. Right. Let yeah, let me let me just give you uh, a couple of cuts off of here. Um, just a just to give to yourself for yeah this so of course we've got new slang by the shins we've got one of these things first by nick drake that i mean that's a that's, well, that's always a, like sad boy yeah folk sort of thing don't panic by coldplay mm-hmm. which is weird to think mm-hmm. that coldplay at one point was considered like indie mm-hmm. i'm like that's i don't like that i don't know how I feel play about that. like the the uh, soldier field like last week uh so. he definitely he threw in some simon and garfunkel the only boy living oh sorry the only living boy in new york uh lebanese blonde by the thievery corporation can we just stop for a second the only living boy in new york what more that's just like that must be in every indie song set in brooklyn right yeah that just that must be and that's like the archetype for it yeah. in the same way that gavin gavin mckinnis is the 
from Vice Media or formerly of Vice Media is the prototype for every hipster in Brooklyn. Yeah, Jesus. Um, and then a cover of, as far as I can tell, a cover of Such Great Heights by Iron and Wine. Yeah. I think the original, I don't know if it appeared on the sound. I feel like the actual song, though, by the Postal Service was in Garden State, but I don't know if it made it onto the soundtrack. But That's at least the cover of it by Iron and Wine. Iron Wine. And by the way, the most sad bearded singer I've ever seen I in my know. life. I want, I want to love Iron and Wine. There's a lot I love about him, but I'm just mm-hmm. like, God, this is very um, early 2000s white boy core. Like, <laughs> and that, I try, I mean that in the nicest way possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a great, I, I just want to get into anecdotes. Yeah. Uh, because I th- that's the best way to share soundtracks. There's always a story behind it, and I remember it was it was 2001, 2002. I was living in Singapore at the time, and I was maybe like eight years old, eight nine years old, something like that. Starting a new business out in Singapore. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we should have a soundtrack to this story. Yeah, at yeah. The time. Like, we'll just put a little bad music bed right here. Ooh. And uh, I was, you know, I had my Walkman, and uh, I think I had like. A Smash Mouth CD. I was really yes. into Smash Mouth. Like, yeah. um, Which but one? It, it wasn't even Astro Lounge. Was it Fushu Mang? It wasn't even Fushu Mang. It was like <laughs> the third one. It was the one after they hit mainstream success because uh, of the Shrek and- soundtrack. <laughs> hey, no shame in that. They're actually a pretty good band. Like, yeah, as they much actually as they released get- a new album this weekend. No way. <laughs> yeah, they did. They have a song on there called You, you Need to Do a, a Two Guys, One Album on this new S- Smash Mouth. <laughs> CD, we would insane. love to you have probably you guys get the whole band on there. Yeah, <laughs> we would love to have you guys on for the Smash Mouth uh, deconstruction of that. We new absolutely album. should. Yeah, but absolutely. Um, I was there was this kid at my school and um, he was listening to something on his on his CD player on his Walkman. I'm like, what you listening to? And he's like, oh man, it's this crazy guy. His name's Eminem. <laughs> oh, man. And I'm like, what CD is it? He's like, oh, it's called Eight Mile. It's from a movie. And I was like, called Eight Mile. Yeah, it's called Eight Mile. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And he's like, here, listen to a little bit of this. And I was just like, you know, palms are sweaty, knees deep, arms, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mom's, Mom's spaghetti. spaghetti. <laughs> yes. And I was like, wow, this is the most aggressive. This is the hardest song I've ever heard. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you want to borrow it for a little while? Yeah, so totally. But I knew my mom would never, never let me have that because uh, I did. I think I had heard Eminem before. I think I had some like inkling of who he was, and he was like a bad guy. You know, he, he had the parental advisory sticker on his mm-hmm. on his CDs. And they didn't like his mom. No, he had a not thing. Too not too much. And I remember sitting. I had I I did not see the movie until at least fifteen years after. I would listen to the soundtrack. I never like really saw the movie, but I had this idea of what the movie was like based on listening to the soundtrack. And what I used to do was I'd put it in my CD player and I'd sit on the couch in our front room and like hide it underneath some cushions and just have the headphones out so that my mom couldn't see what I was listening to (laughs) as though she wouldn't walk by and be like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you hiding your CD player in the couch and like just sitting there listening to it? And I remember she caught me. She was like, what are you listening to? I was like, oh, Smash Mouth. She's like, well, why are you hiding it then? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm just kind of like doing whatever. And she's like, show me what you're listening to. I pulled out my CD player. She's like, what is this? What is this filth? Eight Mile soundtrack. <laughs> Let me so be good. free, Mom. Yeah. Top tier soundtrack, though. Eight Mile. No, eat so your spaghetti, good. Tom. Stop listening to your rap music. <laughs> eat my spaghetti. I'm your mother. I'm your goddamn mother. <laughs> Oh geez, that's that. That is so funny because it's very early two thousands. Because uh, the cool thing about music, 
it's just words mixed with music. If you think about it, it's kind of the even Eminem is not as tough as the guys who are really on the streets, like yeah. going through the things that he's rapping about. Because yeah. he's he's a poetry, he's writing poetry and putting it to music. I mean, that's pretty darn artsy for a guy who's so tough all the time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He he calls people like homophobic slurs and stuff. I'm just like, I don't know, man. You're the one sitting in your room writing poetry. <laughs> yeah. Whoa! Yeah. Well, huh. Shots fired <laughs> yeah. by Tom Hush. Well, that well that's why I always love the the scene from the interview i think that was really subversive oh, where he's yeah. just like oh yeah i'm yeah i'm gay yeah mm-hmm. i'm like yeah dude and then t- james franco just in his most overblown role ever yeah something like, like that um oh, i kind of enjoyed that movie though you i know, like that, the now that i think about it yeah i think I it's ridiculous it's wonderfully ridiculous I, it's maybe the start of when i started to dislike james franco because now mm. i see him in the deuce on hbo and he's just like who'd have thought right and it's like <laughs> fucking <laughs> You smile at me like that one more time. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought, right? It's like, um, get I, him in a John Travolta movie. I think what I what <laughs> I want to jump onto here is uh, I, let's let's end on this big question, which is a lot of the soundtracks that we've talked about have to do with, especially with original scores. Recently, it's become very big for existing artists to go to make the move into doing a soundtrack obviously you've got eminem but he's doing the soundtrack for his own movie that's mm-hmm. you know that's not unheard of you've got prince doing the soundtrack for purple rain but uh speaking of prince you know he did the original soundtrack for batman in 1989 um you've got a lot of stuff from the 70s like uh superfly trouble man and shaft yep. all huge movies all scored by three massive r&b and soul artists uh of course was superfly curtis mayfield trouble man marvin gay and then shaft was isaac hayes uh currently you've got tom york doing a soundtrack even trent reznor i would say has found a second life in the music industry doing soundtracks i mean he won an oscar for his work on the social network he did the girl with the dragon tattoo he's doing mid 90s now he's done so much stuff so why do you think more and more artists are finding this second life as composers is more than just a quote unquote pop artists. Why are they suddenly going into this world? Hmm. That's it's, it's, you got to think about it whenever you're looking at music and you're looking at an artist who is, who's coming into his own and, and trying to create, it all goes back to the days that they were in school and first learning about music and everyone starts as a composer. And, and to be honest, even the guys from Third Eye Blind, when everyone was like, oh, they're a big hit band, you know, why, why won't they keep going on? And they ended up being amazing producers um, and amazing songwriters creating some of, some of the biggest pop stars of today. So it goes back to the fact that at heart, the people who are really in for the music are composers at heart. So I think that they, the thought of just being locked in a studio and creating sounds and song after song, thousands of songs, is what they want to do with the rest of their life. So it it actually comes easy to them to be able to to put their their art into these movies. So maybe that's why it's coming to be um, one one on its own. But you got to think about the fact that at the time in the 1970s, 80s, you didn't see a lot of people who were, who were uh, besides Prince and a few, um, David Bowie and mm-hmm. people that you mentioned before, a um, little bit of an outlier who were creating these soundtracks. 
Now you can sit on your computer in your in your studio and create an entire movie and soundtrack by yourself. Yeah, right. I mean the, the amount of digital information and the amount of creativity that's at, just at your fingertips is much more great than we've ever seen before. So seeing these, seeing Trent Reznor like really come into his own, he doesn't want to go on tour anymore. He wants to sit in in a studio, watch a movie, and be like, you know, what would be really cool. <laughs> and just play that for, for a few minutes. Um, and I, I think it's a beautiful thing that's coming to be. And it's showing you now who the true artists really are. Because you're not seeing Britney Spears put out a, a, a full length. Well, actually, I take that back. Didn't she do um, her own movie? She was in Crossroads. But, but we don't want to this... talk about that. <laughs> Has that come up on the podcast before? God, I, uh, I really no. The, we're you're go the first. Back. We're going to go back and delete it if it happens. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But she she actually she she has has given some time into movies, so I shouldn't hate on her too much. But you're starting to see, you know, Trent Reznor, really great artist at heart, and now he's trying trying to dip his toe into movies, and it's a beautiful thing. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean. I, I think part of it has to do with it removes the constraints of pop sensibility. And I mean, we're not talking about artists that necessarily make like straight up marketable pop music. Like Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. I mean, it is super listenable, like, but he goes some places, you know, he's had some big hits, but like a lot of his music is like crushing and depressing. Right. So I think it removes the weight of having to adhere to certain conventions. Right. Um, you don't have to do pop structure. Like, mm-hmm. Suspiria doesn't have to have pop structure. No. You know, Tom York can just make his own, um, you know, his own wild inventions and um, play so much more broadly with mood and, like, motif. Whereas, mm-hmm. Not that he doesn't do that in Radiohead, but it's within, it's within that structure. It's within pop rock music. Right. And even though they flaunt it, you know, they flout it at times, um, do what Johnny Greenwood and Tom York, just just as base examples, have done in their respective soundtracks, is kind of explore outside of that. Because co- composing music can go so many places when you're not thinking, I'm in a band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to, to that point, I think it's really interesting to think about it like the what you were saying, Tom, not having to adhere to the brand that you've built for yourself is probably really freeing for a lot of artists. Totally, You don't have to be n- Nine Inch Nails. And while there are a lot of just straight-up mood pieces and strange avant-garde noise tracks on the Suspiria soundtrack, there are some genuinely good songs yeah. on there. The song, the big title song, Suspirium, we were saying earlier, that could have like, basically been on the most recent Radiohead album. Right. Mm. It could have been on a moonshape pool, easily. Yeah. And there was there were a couple of other ones which we don't have to talk about because we're running out of time. But uh, I did want to say that I think that, and and also to your point, how it shows you who the real artists are, honestly, because I think that it takes it's one thing to sort of just reach inside yourself and you create a song based off of self-expression. It's a little bit more of an ethereal thing to make a song for a band, I think, because you're not doing it and it doesn't have to adhere to a visual medium. It doesn't have to make sense to another part, to another sense of you, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're making a, a soundtrack for a movie, it has to adhere in some way, or there has to be a point there to, to be what's synthesis. happening. There has to be a synthesis there, and that's difficult. And I, I just, I just think that it's such a different talent because you could. You could be a great musician. You could be the greatest guitar player in the world or whatever. 
but you might not have the chops to be able to, you know, score empathize movie, yeah. empathize with what's happening in a scene. That's a good way to put it. That's and just uh, just bouncing off of of what you you said, Connor. Um, you made me think about the bands that used to take this and take it on their own to create a soundtrack and then create the movie afterwards. I mean, think about Pink Floyd's The Wall right. or The Who's mm. Tommy. Yeah. Uh, they they yeah, were Yeah, dude, that's crazy. They they were doing a conceptual album that they wanted to make into a movie. I mean, yeah. it's it, you don't go into the studio and spend four hours um, recording bird sounds for no reason. Yeah. I mean, most of the wall is bird sounds. Can we just put that out there? And <laughs> Have you ever really listened to the wall? It's bird sounds. It's yes. bird sounds. Yeah, it's ambient bird sounds talking in the background. I think there were some people coughing at one point, and I was just like, who's... R- Roger Waters is... is uh, he's going back and recording this shit? Yeah. And, and, but then turning it into an, an art piece and a movie, I think, is so cool. And you don't see a lot of bands do that. So I say props to tom york for for doing this and and there should be more active people doing this i mean you mentioned a star is born before that was a great great soundtrack i'm not gonna lie i did almost cry in that movie because it was it was a lot of you you would not be alone you would not be alone in that and so maybe that maybe that's what we need as um as as the audience is to get our artists maybe do those conceptual albums again? Why isn't anybody really focusing on on creating a, a, the bigger art piece? Because you want something to last when you when you get off this spinning blue marble. So mm-hmm. why not dive into that? It's yeah. it's it's very interesting. I could talk about this for the next two hours. Yeah, con- right. I mean, I love the idea of the. It's almost you look at it almost like reverse engineering because usually you think you see the movie and then they make the soundtrack to go with the movie. But you know, with things like these rock operas, you know, the wall. Uh, Tommy, Tommy. Quadrophenia, mm-hmm. um, all of them have film versions that are derived from the music itself. So it just goes to show um, when it when when you're looking at film, sound light it's it's light and sound, right? And those things need to work together in order. And whether it's the uh, the the presence or absence of either, you know, some really effective movies are have to be very careful with their use of soundtrack because sometimes you just need silence. And then they can use it more to greater effect. Um, a fascinating conversation. Michael Heideman, host of the Sound Sessions podcast. Mike, where can we follow Sound Sessions? And where can we follow you? Oh, you can follow us at, we have, let me think here for a second. You can follow Sound Sesh Pod on Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at Sound Sesh also pod i believe uh email us at soundsessionspodcast at gmail.com you can find me at michaelheideman.com and you can listen to me uh on patty vasquez show with andrea darlis every night here on wgn from 7 to 11 fantastic thanks for thanks for having me by the way guys this is awesome a lot of fun thanks for, for coming on man all right uh and thank all of you mm. listeners oh i thought you were thanking me Oh well, yeah. All thank of, you. I thought you were thinking every bit of me because that's exactly my, what I was thinking. My bagel is a wonderland. I thought we were coming back. <laughs> Your to that. bagel. My if if you know what I think we've me. got another project on our hands where we take uh, John Mayer songs and turn them into being about bagels. <laughs> oh God, we still have to make those first two albums. An, appre- an appreciation of the Jewish deli <laughs> by Tom Hushakani. Seriously, like bagels I'm, are the greatest. I'm serious. I'm. Goddamn serious. Uh, this has been NoCo Cinema here on WGM Plus, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>